We want to thank the great people of Iowa. Thank you. We love you all. This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Bernice Harrison. Today, the race for the White House has officially begun. Who knows where it'll take us? Keith Duggan, welcome to In the News. Thanks, Bernice. Thanks for having me. You're the Irish Times' new Washington correspondent. And, you know, what a time to take on the job. It's January of a US presidential election year. It's a hugely significant one in so many ways. How do you feel to be covering it? I'm really, really excited by it and looking forward to it. Um, It is, as you say, it's a monumental year uh, for the country. And it's been building and slowly burning towards this point for quite some time, it seems. And it officially got going over uh, the weekend in Iowa. So it was very strange and unique to get to witness it and get to witness, as they would say, democracy in practice in, in that part of the country. What was it like? It was fascinating. And, you know, as you probably saw and a lot of people saw, Bernice, it was predominantly and overwhelmingly cold. Um, I got in there on last Monday afternoon and about three o'clock and the first sort of snow flurries had just begun to fall. And I was thinking, oh, you know, it's going to make it really, really nice and pretty, you know, in my innocence. And um, within 24 hours, the place had sort of ground to a halt. And it really, the state sort of recovered to deal with just this ferocious weather snap, which gripped most of the country, but in particular, the sort of Midwest. But that said, it is, it's an extraordinary thing. It's extraordinary, the investment of time and money and effort that the candidates put into this particular state because of its historical relevance and resonance. And also, you know, the engagement of local people there, like the people that you, you, that you speak with, they are very... Um, the majority of them very thoughtful and very considered in the whole process. And they went along to the events and some of them genuinely or at least at least said they genuinely were waiting to make up their minds at the caucus vote on, on Monday evening. So now we're going to talk about the presidential horse race a lot today. But before we talk about that, when you were in Iowa, you talked to Republicans there, those who were turning out to caucus. What type of people are Iowans and the ones you spoke with, the Republicans, what were their concerns? They're sort of generally quiet enough spoken, fairly relaxed, sort of unfazed by the uh, idea of political celebrity in their midst. You know, they're not they're not easily impressed, which which I like about them. To be honest, I mean, most people I spoke with were more they were more excited by there's a there's a college, uh, a female college basketball player called Caitlin Clark, who plays for uh, the University of Iowa, who's become this sensation. And they're really engaged with her. When you think about the number of people who actually turned out in the state on Monday night, it was 110,000. She was playing a game on I think it was the Saturday night and uh, it was a 15,000 crowd sellout during the worst of the blizzard. And had they had 30,000, the are- that's all the arena holds. Had they had twice that, they would have got twice that number, you know. So I spoke to people from different walks of life, from, you know, sort of farming community to local business people in Des Moines to students who were uh, driving Ubers on the side to make some extra money. And you know, like like anywhere else, they just have, if there is a collective concern that they have, it's about the, the sort of generalized sense of anxiety um, as to as to where their country is headed on a lot of fronts, which the candidates gave voice to from the stage. One person you spoke to, Keith, uh, and you reported it in the paper, you spoke to this very 
pleasant, easygoing Trump voter. Me, can I ask your name? My name's Janet Rose. R-O-S-E? Yeah. Okay. And she said, look, time keeps rolling forward. That's all there is to it. And some things are just never going to go back. We're never going to see low prices because people are demanding higher wages. The last four years we had were ridiculous. But I think that it can get back to um, maybe, I mean, you look at the last four years that we had, it was ridiculous. So if we even get back a little bit to, you know, before the Joe Biden administration to where Trump was running it, then we're, you know, we're better off. <laughs> That sort of talk has to sort of raise alarm bells in in the Biden camp because that sort of that expresses a very deep dissatisfaction in the way things are going in America. Was she representative, do you think, of the people you spoke to? Yeah, she was certainly representative of a mindset. You know, she lived this lady, she's she's a retiree. Uh, she came along in, in really, it, it's hard to articulate just how cold it was on Monday night. And she went to well, they sent her to the wrong caucus precinct first. So she had to get to where I ultimately met her, which was a museum in the middle of the town. And yeah, she is. There is this sense that everyone wants to get back to a sort of an ill-defined better time. Um, I spoke with another voter who was at one of Nikki Haley's rallies. And I asked him when he felt was, you know, the best time in, in his lifespan for America. And he, and, and he immediately identified the Reagan years when he probably would have been a teenager. So there is a little bit of, you know, wistful thinking. But there's no doubt that people, a lot of people um, associate Biden's administration with just the global escalation, the cost of living, which is really, really pronounced here. And that's something that Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump have all been hammering, you know, just the price of petrol at petrol stations, the price of food, price of home heating, mortgages. Mortgages have really, really um, gone through the roof here through infl- because of inflation. So people are hurting, and that's why they tend to look back towards, um, as they would perceive it, a better time. But I thought, I do think she's right. I mean, time does keep hurting forward. And this very vague concept of of our ideal of, of the American dream is something that I think a lot of Americans do really value and really believe in. But I just think it's becoming more and more difficult for a lot of them to, to see it right now. And that's, I think that accounts for the sense that they want somebody different. And in the case of Mr. Trump, somebody with a very definite um, sense of where he wants to take the country. Now, Donald Trump, he was always predicted to win the I.O. caucus. I think even before voting started, the media in America were, you know, predicting that he he was going to win. And he won big league. Now, my producer has just written big league out here. I always thought he said bigly, not big league. But there you go. (laughs) So he won big league with 51 percent of the vote. Now, we'll talk about Trump in a minute. But first, could we talk about the biggest question going into the Iowa caucus? And that was who would come second? There were three main contenders, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy. In the end, Ramaswamy took just 8% of the votes and he dropped out of the race. DeSantis came second. I can tell you because of your support, in spite of all of that that they threw at us, everyone against us, we've got our ticket punched out of Iowa. <laughs> by just two points ahead of Haley. Do you want a new generation of conservative leadership? And they were both around 30 points 
behind Trump. That's unprecedented. Are DeSantis and Haley's campaigns still alive after coming such distant second and third places? Is there a path to victory for them? They're still alive in the sense, I think, that they can plausibly argue that there's a reason for them to still be competing for the nomination. But you, you do wonder if they're just postponing the inevitable. I did think on Monday night it must be dismaying for both of them to have spent all this time here. Uh, because, I mean, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis have been coming to parts of Iowa for, for the past year, just coming in and out. And they've had people on the ground to try and build support. And it has worked. I mean, if you look at where Nikki Haley started from, she was, you know, she was unknown nationally and she she has risen to become a national name. She got 20% of the vote. It's still only, it translated to roughly 20,000 people who put her name down on a, on a on a piece of paper. It's not a lot of people. But then again, when you look at the overall figures, you know, 50,000 voted for Donald Trump. That's not a lot of people out of 3.1 million. So, you know, like Bernice, it is, it's a television show in many respects, as much as anything else. I do wonder if, Say, for instance, the networks decided, right, we're not going to, we're not going to influence this. We're going to, we're going to just, there's going to be a blackout. How important then would, would the result in Iowa be in terms of the, the national psyche or, or, or consciousness? At one point in this campaign, there were 14 of us running. I was at 2% in the polls. I don't know what their strategy is, neither does anybody else, but I suppose they're hoping that maybe if Nikki Haley as is projected does well in New Hampshire next weekend, maybe that leaves her the viable alternative. But when you look at how we're doing in New Hampshire, in South Carolina, and beyond, I can safely say tonight, Iowa made this Republican primary a two-person race. And maybe uh, Donald Trump's legal woes come to haunt him down the line, and in which case she's in, in a position to step up. But as to whether they can actually defeat him, it's difficult to see how right now. We'll talk next about Donald Trump, but after this short break. At this point in a presidential race, party candidates, they're usually battling each other for the top slot. That wasn't the mood that Trump was going for in Iowa. He treated it as if he was already the candidate and he was already campaigning against Joe Biden. It's a very shrewd strategy as well. He he either ignored the two dominant candidates, Haley and DeSantis, for, for weeks on end or else just, just sort of insulted them and just declined to take part in the official Republican television debates and did his own thing. He's treating it like a, like a coronation in a way. And percentage-wise, the results bore that out, like 50%, 98 out of 99 counties. It's an overwhelming vote of confidence in him. And more and more Republican senators come out to endorse him immediately afterwards, which he, he noted from the stage. Uh, we have, you know, probably 50, 55% of the senators. And now they're all calling and saying, we want to endorse you, sir. I said, oh, great. It made an impression on a lot of people because, for once, he sounded quite agreeable and gracious in victory in, 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 in congratulating the other two. I think they both actually did very well. I really do. I think they both did very well. We don't even know what the outcome of second place is. He spoke as though he'd won the presidency, in a way, not just uh, the first state vote in, in, a, in a long campaign. 
So yeah, I do think it's a strategy and I do think it's it's an attitude we're going to see more of as as, as the weeks roll on. He, he sort of spoke in a sort of kind of a statesman-like wave, quite un-Trump-like, really. This is time now for everybody, our country, to come together. We want to come together, uh, whether it's Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative. It would be so nice if we could come together and straighten out the world. And Definitely the wasn't like his normal Trump trash talk kind of approach. Do you, do you think he has, as, as I firmly on the battle with Joe Biden here. That's what he is planting in the public consciousness. Because, you know, Biden, I suppose, is generally seen as a more, you know, decent, statesmanlike man. Yeah, I, I do think so. I mean, just on that previous point as well, I mean, the few events that they get to attend, one thing about Trump is he's fairly quick-witted. He can think on his feet. He's got a sharp retort about him. Much has been made about the fact that he is you know, uh, failed to stand up in a debate forum against Nikki Haley. I wonder, though, I mean, I saw her speak at, in, a, in an event in Ankeny, which is a suburb of Des Moines, and was really impressed by her delivery. It was very, um, it was very emotive. It was very polished. It was very clear in what she wanted to say. But then I happened to catch another event she did a couple of days later. And inflection for inflection, word for word, it was the very same thing. So it was extremely rehearsed. And I just wonder what she would be like if she was faced with, you know, Trump's debating tactics, which can be intimidatory and unpleasant in the extreme. So, yeah, like, I do think he's he, he, he has his eye in the bigger picture. And he's obviously, I mean, straight after his victory, he was in court in Manhattan. He's he's juggling quite a lot of balls right now. So I think he just wants to get this Republican nomination wrapped up as quickly as possible and then galvanize the Make America Great Again section of the Republican Party, which is not all the Republican Party uh, supporters, and see about, uh, see about mounting an attack on Biden. Well, you talked there about the court in Manhattan. When you were in Iowa, did you talk to Trump-supporting Republicans about the legal cases? I mean, how do they view Trump's legal battles, many of them. Like, what is their attitude of them? To be honest, that aspect of his personality and history was more prevalent among the Republican voters who just couldn't tolerate the idea of his leading their party. You know, I spoke to another guy the night of the caucuses. I think his name is Spencer Burton. Really reasonable, pleasant man who'd kind of, you know, he, he said himself he, he tended to flip a little bit politically. But for him, he, he said he'd become more conservative in his in his middle-aged years. But the idea of Trump as leading America, he found unconscionable. The Trump supporters, I mean, they tend to just to... Well, for a start, I think, you know, when you're living in, you know, in the Midwest there, what happens in courtrooms in New York, if you wish, can seem very distant and remote unless you go searching for the details. So a lot of people, you know, it, they may sort of gloss over it by saying, you know, he has his flaws or nobody's perfect or they all have, you know, skeletons in their closet, etc. They tend to sort of skate around it rather than uh, delve into it. Well, I mean, it's such a, a significant issue that there's been polling on it. Well, there's polling on everything, I suppose. But the polling shows that in Iowa, at least, a conviction wouldn't damage his electability, which I found extraordinary. 80% of Iowa Republican voters said their support would remain the same or it didn't go up. Only 18% said the support would wane. 
But a December poll, a nationwide poll, suggested that a conviction in the court could cost Trump five percentage points. And that would tip the election in Biden's favour, assuming, of course, they, they both emerge. Well, Biden is the, the, the Democrat nominee, but assuming that Trump emerges the Republican nominee. It's one of the big unanswered questions of 2024, isn't it? What impact will Trump's legal troubles have on the election as a whole? It is unanswered. And I think the only way it will be answered is if, if he's found guilty in one of the upcoming uh, cases or indictments, that obviously that could completely derail his campaign. Nikki Haley, she moved on to New Hampshire on Monday night straight after the results came in. And on Tuesday morning, she was at a coffee shop event there and was asked about his court appearance. And again, this was an opportunity if she's going to attack him to go after, you know, his 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 character to do so. And again, she just ducked the question. She said, look, he's he's innocent until proven guilty. And if he is proven guilty, then we deal with that. But, you know, I think it's very easy as well for, for you know, another poll said that I think 70% of the people who voted for Trump and I on Monday night also believed that the election was not was was essentially rigged. So it's very easy for them to lump the court cases into this bigger theme, um, which uh, is sort of drifting through Trump's speeches about sort of a deep state conspiracy against them, you know. So you can take whatever perspective you want on these cases and make them explicable to yourself if you're determined to see Mr. Trump back in the White House. Well, talk about perspective and things people don't want to talk about. In the run-up to this election, it's been said that abortion will be a big issue because of how Roe v. Wade was struck down last year. With Roe v. Wade gone, in a religious state like Iowa, there are plenty who are very vocal in wanting their president to support a nationwide ban. Now, Trump doesn't support that, though. Um, But that, oddly, doesn't seem to have been much of a liability for him in the end. He was asked about it. I went along to the the Fox News town hall event that he did in Des Moines on, I think it was Wednesday night, and he was asked about it by a local lady who's, who's very much pro-life there's and there's a beating heartbeat legislation that's come into Des Moines and yeah she pushed him on that and he he would only go so far you know they they agreed to differ I think it was one of the questions that was sort of televised and I was speaking with her afterwards she she's convinced that this will become a a driving issue later in the year uh once the candidates have have been decided and I think it will it will become a very vocal aspect of the campaign um later you know once the presidential debates start So Iowa was this week and the next stop on the caucus trail is New Hampshire. That's an open primary. And that means that anybody in the state can vote, any citizen in the state can vote, either a registered Republican, registered Democrat, anybody can vote. You'll be there. What should we be looking out for? And um, I suppose more importantly, is the forecast to be any warmer there than in Iowa? Afraid not, Bernice. No, I think it's it's uh, it's pretty bleak up there at the minute as well. Yeah, I'm going up at the weekend. And um, look, it's the state that Nikki Haley has been sort of very publicly banking on for the past uh, for the past number of weeks. She did relatively well in in Iowa, and now she's really hoping to um, establish herself as the front runner with after the results here on uh, on I think it's Tuesday night. You know, just. 
268,000 registered Republicans in that state. She spent, or her campaign has spent 22 million on TV broadcasting up there. It's a phenomenal uh, amount mm. of money. When you think about, again, how how few actual votes that's likely to translate to. So she will certainly be hoping to to win it, to, to win that state. Trump is scheduled to give a series of rallies and debates over the weekend, and it'll be interesting to see if he can just, again, sweep in at the 11th hour and maybe do do better than anticipated. In a state that is, you know, it's quite different in terms of um, demographics to uh, to Iowa. In what way? Well, I mean, it's not as rural. You know, it's a smaller state. It's not. I think it's particularly diverse. But uh, well, it's it's not. It's not really diverse. But it po- possibly wouldn't contain quite as many uh, Trump-oriented uh, Republicans as Iowa. And how do you think DeSantis is going to fare? Because he would have expected to do a bit better in Iowa. They're more his people. New Hampshire people aren't his people. How do you think he's going to fare? He's had a really rough time, as far as I can see, since since I've got here. Uh, He's quite a uh, he's quite a stilted performer uh, in terms of his public events, and the American media are fairly merciless in. in highlighting his his shortcomings on that front. He's elected not to really campaign uh, much in New Hampshire. He's not expected to make much of an impression there. And he's moved on to South Carolina to uh, to try and um, drum up more support there. Uh, but he is in a, yeah, he's in, he's in a very vulnerable position right now. Well, Keith, there are many things we could talk about. I mean, we didn't really get to talk about Joe Biden, for example. But look, I think there's going to be plenty of time for that as this very long American election year goes on. Thanks very much, Keith. Thanks, Bernice. Thank you. That's it for today. For Keith Duggan's coverage of the US presidential election in 2024, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Bernice Harrison. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon. In the news, we'll be back tomorrow.